come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. to episode number 70 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here is going to be my Centennial Club number 8, as I have featured reviews of Arrival from the Darkness, which is a Czechoslovakian film from 1921. And then I paired it up with a screener of a movie, I believe came out in 2019 is when it hit its festival run. But it's now getting its wide release here in 2021, as I was saying, of Dementor. And then also on this episode, I have mini reviews of Occult, Thirst, and My Bloody Valentine. All those from 2009, as I'm getting very close to finally finishing up the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series list from the 2000s. I think that's all I really have to get you up to speed here for this episode. That's what everything is going to be featured here. But before I get into those mini reviews, I do have to do my monthly review. And for my monthly review for February, I watched 29 total films. 26 of them were horror films. Six of them were 2021 releases, giving me a percentage of 89.66% of everything I watched was a horror film. And then the movies that I watched in that month are The Sweet Blood of Jesus, Synchronic, Bud Abbott and Luke Costello Meet the Invisible Man, The Descent, Dead Ringers, The Queen of Black Magic, Sugar Hill, The Curse of the Werewolf, Far From the Apple Tree, Bloody Reunion, Them, Slither, Eve's Bayou, St. Maud, The Innocents, Ghost Watch, Honeymoon, Silent Hill, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, The Haunted Castle, The Night, Rogue, 30 Days of Night, Dementor, The Hills Run Red, and the last one for the month was Arrival from the Darkness. Now, 11 countries were represented as I watched from the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Indonesia, South Korea, France, Romania, Germany, Iran, Australia, New Zealand, and Czechoslovakia. Now, the 2021 watches are Synchronic, The Queen of Black Magic, Far From the Apple Tree, St. Maud, The Night and Dementor. The oldest one that I watched is a tie of The Haunted Castle and Arrival from Darkness are both from 1921. The average year is 1994. 
The highest rated was The Descent at a 9.5. The lowest rated was Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man at a 6.5, with my average rating in that month being a 7.8. Now, the ones that are not on this feed are Dead Ringers, which is part of the T-Puts Movie Club Challenge, and then Ghost Watch is part of the T-Puts Collective Where to Begin With. And that one actually hasn't been released over there yet. Like, that one will be released in March. And then I also did watch Honeymoon, which is on SideQuest Podcast, which is on this feed, but not this show particularly. And then just to give you an update on my yearly totals, I'm sitting at 10 2021 watches, 56 horror movies, 70 total movies. My average year is 1996. The average rating is a 7.7. And the percentage of everything I'm watching that is horror is 80%. So that is everything I wanted to do here for my monthly review. I'm going to get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And as always, I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me.
And for my first mini review of this week is going to be Occult from 2009. This goes by the original title of Akaruto. And this is written and directed by Koji Shirashi. And this stars Mika Azuma, Horikin, and Kwon Kodo. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Japan. And it is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being Koji Shirashi is interested in strange indiscriminate murder at a sightseeing resort. He goes behind the camera to investigate the circumstances surrounding strange occurrences and interview the survivors. Now this is a movie I'd never heard of until the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. It was one that when I heard them talking about it, I was intrigued, especially because I've seen some of the director's previous works with Sadako vs. Kayako, A Record of Sweet Murder, and Norai the Curse. That is the order that I actually saw them in, and it was a record of sweet murder that kind of blew me away, and Norai for this challenge series that I really enjoyed as well. So what I will say is that I don't know a whole lot about this director, but I do remember somebody on that podcast under the stairs episodes talking about some of his movies and how he enjoys doing these lower budget found footage films it might end up having to do with the fact of his finances that he's working with but i'll give him credit as what he does those these that are, inf- are effective this movie does feel like a lot like norai and a record of sweet murder i do like both of them better than this one that is not to mean to be as a slight there now where i want to start is the idea of this documentary i love the idea that shirashi is playing himself. On top of that, another horror movie director of Kayoshi Kurosawa makes an appearance as a horror movie director who is the leading expert on the lore of this mountain that they end up going to. It does appear there are others just playing themselves as well, which I find it to be pretty interesting to be honest and does make for an interesting kind of mockumentary here as well. Then the next thing I want to shift over to is the idea of this curse that seems to be the crux of what this movie is about. There is something that Chirashi seems to continue to come back to and i'm thinking that it might be you know just because of japan and that is the idea of like these curses and everything like that i just think it's kind of ingrained into their culture and lore and everything like that so it does make a whole lot of sense this is something that you see a lot in their culture as what i was saying from my understanding and it drives the movie and keeps me wanting to know more there are things like ufos a prophecy the murderer having this birthmark that actually might mean something more and there might be a reason that that is on his body with like, not something that should naturally be there. And plus, there are these scars from the attack on the character of Eno that also lead to something on a, that is found on a mountain. I like how each piece of evidence leads to the next thing, and that is something that really pulls me in. I also like to hear the name of Hiroku, as it, this is a mythical entity from my understanding as well. And then there's obviously Haruko the Goblin that I have seen for the you know Summer Challenge series for the 90s. And I do honestly think that that might correlate into with something here as well. I don't think the story does as well here as Shirashi did in Norai though. The movies have similar lengths, but this one isn't as focused for me, and it felt like it ran a bit too long to be honest. That's not to say that it doesn't know how to build tension, but I could feel my anxiety going up with each piece of evidence and as things start to come together. There's this interesting aspect here that things might be predetermined or people might be just be pre-selected, There could be something that is drawing these people to certain things and pushing them forward to the events that happen. Now moving away from the story here, I'll go to the acting. For the most part, I think that everyone is playing a good enough character. This is a found footage film, so you don't need to have, you know, award-winning performances. 
They feel natural. I believe that the people they are being, and it is fun to see Shirashi as he goes on in this movie as well. When I realized that he was the director, it makes it interesting to where he ends up. I like the touch of having a cameo by Kurosawa as himself as well. Now the next thing I want to go over would be the soundtrack. Normally for movies like this, I don't like to have songs in it that the characters cannot hear. I'm willing to overlook this here though. The reason being that the footage we are watching has actually been edited by somebody. That would explain the titles that we are seeing that explain things and then the music they added for atmosphere. This works really well on top of that. It made me uncomfortable and then it added tension especially along you know to the climax and that works. Then the last bit would you know is something that's kind of Hitchcockian because we know something but everybody around him doesn't so we're just waiting for something to happen and it does a really good job of you know building tension with that whole thing. So then the last thing I want to go over here for this movie would be the elephant in the room. The one thing I knew people had gripes about this movie were the effects. Since this is found footage, I'll go to the cinematography first. The movie has a legitimate you know, explanation why most everything is being filmed here as we have a documentary film crew. Aside from that, the character of Eno is getting paid to catch things on film, so that works as well. The camera is shaky, and it can be hard to see things at times, but I am forgiving there. And I think some of this might help with you know, what I'll get into here in a second. We don't get a lot of practical effects. What we do get are fine. The real issue, though, has to be with the CGI. I'll admit, some of it isn't great and doesn't hold up. The ending stuff just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and it's kind of a bit comical. This does hurt the movie for me as well. So in conclusion here, I was pretty excited to check this movie out once I heard about it, and I will say that it does do some good things with the story elements and where things end up. I think that the acting works and having the writer-director pretty much playing himself is interesting. The soundtrack also you know, helps to build tension, with the realism of found footage helping there as well. If I do have some gripes though, it would be a bit long, and the CGI doesn't necessarily hold up. Regardless, I still found this to be an above-average movie. This is one that I would like to revisit now that I know how things play out and to see what I might have missed. So my rating for this viewing of Occult is going to be a 7 out of 10. And then for my second mini review here, I have Thirst from 2009. This goes by the original title of Bakjui. This is co-written as well as directed by Chan Wook Park or Park Chan Wook, whichever way you like to say that. And then this is also co-written with Seo Kyung Jiong. And this is inspired by the novel from Emily Zola of Teresa Raquin. This stars Kang Ho Song, Kim Okabin, and Heeji Choi. This is a drama, fantasy, horror, romance film that is a co-production between South Korea and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being... Through a failed medical experiment, a priest is stricken with vampirism and is forced to abandon his aesthetic, aesthetic, not really sure how to say that, life, or ways, either way. Now, this is another one that I never heard of until the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. I did know of the co-writer and director, which did intrigue me to give this movie a viewing. Once I had, I was really intrigued as this premise seems to be, you know, doing a different spin on a genre that has been around, I mean, since the beginning of cinema. Plus, being South Korean, I'm usually a fan of movies from there, and I do understand that, you know, the best ones that get sent over here, but regardless, the ones that do, I usually kind of have a deep appreciation for. 
But where I want to start here is co-director or co-writer and director of Park is really a great storyteller. I've seen a few of his movies now, and he really is just impressive with what he can do. The depth of characters along with the story he is conveying really is just impressive in my opinion, and that is no different here. First, I want to delve into the character of Sang Hyun, who is portrayed by Song. I love that Park uses this actor in a lot of his movies. They do work so well together, and it doesn't hurt with how good of an actor Song is. Now here he's a priest. I believe that he has faith and really likes to help people. There is something missing, though, by volunteering for this experiment where so many have died already. By chance, the blood transfusion seems to you know, change him into a vampire, which saves him from passing away. From here, I love the corruption of his character. Priests are supposed to be holy and to do the right thing. When he first drinks blood, he knows it isn't right, but it is to survive. He does take bags of blood for transfusions or drinks from patients that either have no chance of recovery or just want to die. Now, through the character of Tae Joon, who is portrayed by Okibin, he feels lust for her, and then this causes him down a darker path. And that's where I want to go next. I think that Okibin does a great job as this character. When we first meet her, she seems a bit unkept, shy, and mousy. It seems that she knew who Shang Huan was from back when they were children. Now that she is married to Kang Wu, who is portrayed by Shin Ha Kwon, is you know taking a lot of work to be married to him. He isn't capable of doing much, which I think a lot of that is the fault of his mother, who is Mrs. Ra, who is portrayed by Kim Hai Suk. She has spoiled him, and in turn, Tai Jun has to take on these responsibilities. I'm not sure if he's incapable of doing some of these things, or if he's just been stunted due to his upbringing. We soon see that Tae Jun relays to Sang Huan that he could be assaulting her, and she also isn't as shy as she's letting on. She needs a little bit of strength from Shang Huan or anybody that will give that to her, so in turn, she becomes a monster due to this, though. Now, to shifting from there, I want to go next to the vampirism and how it was presented to us. The movie does a great job in showing us what lore they have through this. Shang Huan, with his own, you know, kind of twist with it, now, if he doesn't drink blood, the virus that is within him will manifest with blisters. This feels similar to something like it happens to Deadpool. His curse isn't enough to, you know, completely get rid of it, but it is enough to stave it off, but again, not strong enough to cure him completely. He is superhuman with abilities and strength. Sunlight can kill these vampires. And there's also this great scene here where someone is reciting a blessing on Shang Huan, causing him to bleed from his eyes, ears, and mouth, which I thought that was great. What I also like here is that when people learn of Shang Huan, that he has this, you know, gift, they really want to have a part of that. It's an interesting one because the character of Ro, who is a priest as well and portrayed by In Huan Park, now he is blind and wheelchair bound and he's hoping that if he can get some of this blood, it'll allow him to see again and he makes the promise that if he is given it, he will die. Uh, like immediately after, he just wants to see the sunrise one more time. This concept, when presented, was one that I wanted to know more about since, as they turn, they do become like Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles vampires, where it makes you the most perfect version of you with enhanced abilities. And the last part of the story I wanted to delve into would be the idea of guilt that we have here. It is interesting that Shang Huan is a Catholic priest since a major part of Catholicism is guilt. There is another aspect of guilt when a task is done in this movie. The parties involved are, you know, haunted by the vision of this person along with water, and I thought it was great. At first, I thought that person could really be there, and it was making me wonder what kind of happened, but then the longer it went on, the more I realized that what was going on, and that worked for me. 
Now, since that's all I want to do for the story, I'm going to finish off what about the actors since I've already kind of delved into two of them. I've said how great Song and OK Ben are. I would also like to say the rest of the cast are really good as well. Heisuk is interesting as this overbearing mother. She could be nicer to Teju, but she does you know, see her as a daughter still. She even plans to leave everything to her since she has toughened her up since taking her in as a child. Regardless, Kang Wu is her only true child and we see that. Hakun plays this role very well to the point where it's kind of creepy. I think that all the guests that come over regularly to play Mahjong were all solid as well, as I don't think there's a bad performance here, and they really just run this out for what was needed. Then really the last thing I wanted to go over would be the cinematography and the effects. I have to give credit to Park, as he just knows how to shoot a movie. This is beautifully done, and then as for the effects, I would say that they're done, the practical ones were, you know, look good, Having vampires move as they do seemed to be a combination of CGI and practical, and I'm assuming some of this would be like wires. I'm pretty shocked though how seamlessly this was done. I think I could tell where some CGI was used, but I didn't have any issues with it, and I think that it holds up. I also think the blood has a good texture and color to it, so I would just say that the effects were well done for me. So in conclusion here, this is a movie that I'm glad that was on this list and that I didn't pass it over. This is taking a creature we've seen since the beginning of cinema and giving it an interesting take on it. Having a religious man turning and then seeing the corruption of him as he seeks deeper into this curse is great the effects help to you know bring this great story to life and i think that the acting does as well for this movie that runs 134 minutes it really doesn't feel like it is that long so the soundtrack also fit for what was needed in fitting the tone and atmosphere so overall i would say this is a really good movie and one that i'll definitely watch again now that i kind of know how everything plays out so my rating here for thirst is a nine out of ten and then I watched My Bloody Valentine, the remake from 2009. It was directed by Patrick Lussier. And then the screenplay was written by Todd Farmer and Zane Smith. It comes from the 1981 screenplay by John Beard. And then from the 1981 story is Stephen A. Miller. This stars Jensen Eccles, Jamie King, and Kerr Smith. This is a horror mystery thriller that is a co-production between the United States and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, Tom returns to his hometown on the 10th anniversary of a Valentine's Day night massacre that claimed the lives of 22 people. Instead of a homecoming, Tom finds himself suspected of committing the murders, and it seems like his old flame is the only one that believes he is innocent. Now, this is a movie that I actually saw before the original. When it hit theaters while I was in college, I went to see it in 3D. Upon leaving the theater, this is one of the better 3D experiences that I've had, and I thought that it was used correctly with this movie. Now, I hadn't seen it since then and had finally saw the original before giving this rewatch, and this rewatch is thanks to the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. Now, what I found interesting is that when I first saw this, I really had no context of the characters. Fans of the original would recognize that TJ and Axel are names of the main characters from there. And I'm not going to go into spoilers here, but I will say is I like that this movie does what a remake in my eyes should do. They take elements and set pieces, but then do their own thing to subvert some of your expectations. Now, going along with this, I think this is a solid modern slasher. This movie doesn't take long into giving us kills we are establishing that harry warden went mad and did the massacre that he did and then was stopped we don't truly know his fate so there is a chance that he could still be the killer now we do find out you know later on and then thanks to us not knowing that allows in this movie tom who is portrayed by eccles as well as axel who is portrayed by kerr smith 
along with potentially Deputy Martin, who is portrayed by Eddie Gathigie, as well as Burke, who is Tom Atkins, and a few other characters could be the killer. Of course, veterans of this subgenre would know that some of these are red herrings, but I think that works. Now, I remembered who the killer was coming into this viewing, so I was looking for clues to ensure that there weren't any kind of cheats. Thanks to that, I think there's some rewatchability here as well. Now, the other things you should really need for a slasher is good effects. I think that's something that is what we get here. They went practical with as much as they could, and they all look good. We get a good amount of blood, and then I think some of the kills that they bring in from the original as well as ones they do here are just great. That is what I was saying at first works for this remake like it does. I think that the set pieces we get, like the motel, the grocery store, and the mines all work well. What I did have some issues with, though, are the 3D. Now, I think this looks good if you can watch it that way. Watching it in 2D, though, does lose a bit and doesn't work as well as I would have liked. The last thing I want for this bit here would be the look of the killer. I love it. Having this gas mask, the pickaxe, and being all in black here works for me. This is one of my favorite slasher killer looks. Next, I think I should go to the acting. Now, in a slasher film, I think I connect with the most, like the, what types of movies. I need these characters to have some depth. I don't need it necessarily to like them, though. It just needs to have something there for me to want to either see them live or die. I think that we get that here. Eccles as Tom works. He is this brooding guy who had a traumatic experience, so I believe he would disappear like he does. I like that no one truly knows where he went aside from him and his father. Jamie King is an interesting actress here for me, as she's done so many of these horror remakes. I'm not actually the biggest fan of her in this movie with her performance. She is solid for the most part, but she does get overly emotional too early in the movie in a specific scene. I'm assuming this isn't all on her, but more of like the writing and the direction. It still bothers me though, as I know she's a good actress. I think Kerr Smith is solid as this jerk of a sheriff. He plays this role well. I also like the role of Gathagy. Atkins, as well as Kevin Teague. They're all solid in building the story. And then we do get to see the character of Betsy Rue, who portrays Irene. We get to see her completely nude, which was interesting. And then we also get to see Megan Boone in her underwear, which was, you know, pretty solid as well. So that's something you kind of look for in these slasher films. We do get that. And I thought the rest of the cast just rounded this out for what was needed. So in conclusion here, I think this is a solid modern remake of a classic slasher film. I think it does well in taking elements from the original and doing its own thing with them. The set pieces, look of the killer, and the effects are mostly good in my opinion. The 3D elements don't hold up in 2D unfortunately. Aside from that, I think the acting and the characters are solid for the most part, only you know some slight issues there. The soundtrack also works for what was needed. So for me, I think this is an above average movie that is just shy of being good in my opinion. So my rating here for My Bloody Valentine from 2009 is a 7.5 out of 10. So that's all I have for mini reviews for this week. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review.
And for my first featured review today is going to be Arrival from the Darkness. And this goes by the original title of Prekavozi Z Temnoft. And if you couldn't tell, this is from one of the former Soviet bloc countries. And I'll get into that here in a second. But this is from 1921. This is directed by Jan S. Kolar. And then it comes from a story by Carl Halocha. And the director also came up with the screenplay here as well. Now, this stars Theodore Pistik, Annie Andra, and Yosef Sabov Melostranska, as well as featuring Carl Lamac, Luigi Hoffman, Vladimir Major, Alfred Bastier, Rudolf Maitza, and Jan W. Spierger. And if I do mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize about that, even though I don't think any of these people are actually going to be listening to this. But if there are any ancestors who happen upon this podcast, I do apologize. This is a fantasy horror film that is from Czechoslovakia before they broke up. This is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being is this is about the elixir of life and the secret of the black tower now this is a movie that i didn't know existed until i went through the list of horror films released in 1921 on letterboxd this was me setting up for my centennial club information and when i found that this one was uploaded to youtube i was pretty excited and on top of that as i was saying this is from czechoslovakia so it's a culture that i'm not overly familiar with i do know there's some issues here with you know the them being soviet and communist and everything like that so i was kind of intrigued to see what we would be getting here before I jump into this, I just have some brief kind of notes about some of the key people here. Director of Kolar has 12 films that he has been the director for. This is the only one that I've seen and the only one in horror. And then he had a little bit more success as a writer as he has 18 credits. This is the only one in genre and the only one that I've seen. And he looks like he was actually a more successful actor where he had 38 acting appearances. This is the only movie that the co-writer of Holocha worked on. Pisitic worked quite a bit in the industry. He has a whopping 246 credits. And then shockingly, this is the only one in genre. And not so shocking, this is the only one that I've seen here. Andra has 74 credits. This is the only horror film that she did. What is interesting, though, is I have seen her in two other movies. She worked with Alfred Hitchcock on Blackmail and The Manx Man, which I believe both of those are some of his early silent films that I have seen. And then there's uh, Savab Melo Stravansky has a similar career with 73 films that he's been in. This, again, is the only one in horror and the only one that I have seen. So for this movie, we start off with a man by the name of Richard Bohr, who is portrayed by Measure, as he's shown up to the house of Bowdoin Dravonsky, who is portrayed by Pistek. He has a rare old book, and this is really kind of what Bowdoin is into. Now, this bothers his wife as she doesn't like the book and finds it to be evil. Her name is Dagmar, and she's prayed by Andra. It appears that Richard has been in love with her since they first met, and he wants her to run away with him. Bowden gets sucked into the book, but discovers the plan, and Dagmar, you know, refuses to go away with him anyways, and he kind of goes off on Richard and asks him to leave. Richard isn't done yet, though. It also appears that his family was once the wealthy landowners before the Dravonsky family took over, and he says this a few different times that, you know, things can definitely change there. Dravatsky continues to research this book and comes across a page that is stating that the black tower of his estate is hiding a secret workshop. He goes down and searches for it, finding a secret entrance. 
He goes in and accidentally steps on a stone that locks him in there. Richard also sees what happens and decides to take advantage of this. Bowden is, you know, gone for some time and this upsets his wife and staff and then his friends who are worried about him. While down there, he discovers the body of a man. We will come to find out that this man is Jezik Dravosky, who is portrayed by Lamac. Bowden finds a way to revive him and feels that this is his only way to escape is to revive this guy and kind of go through with this ritual. In doing so, he learns what is needed to wake this man up is the elixir of life and it requires his blood. Things aren't as they seem though, making a the decision that is much more difficult for Bowden if he wants to survive. And then, you know, there's also this kind of thing that if he wakes this guy up, what is he capable of if he, you know, comes back to life? That is where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie, as to be honest, it only runs about an hour long. This movie really has some interesting aspects to it, though. I found the movie to be odd that it kicks off with Richard trying to be sneaky in getting in the good graces of Bowden, only to try to steal his wife of Dagmar away. She isn't interested, though. I did like that Bowden is interested in history, so this book that was given to him really draws his attention. Now, this could also be his downfall as well. Where I want to go next is that would be what we learn about of this ancestor of Jezik. I really did like the story that he tells that leads him to be, you know, dead in the workshop and the reason why he was there. I don't know much about the history of this country. The movie alerts us that it was during the reign of Rudolph II. Not sure if this is a real guy or not. I probably should have looked it up, but I don't even know when this movie takes place. So it's kind of hard for me to do any sort of things like that. What is interesting is that Jezik was in love with a woman named Elena, who is also portrayed by Andra. She dies, though, of the plague, and it sends him into depression. He also befriended an alchemist by the name of Balthazar Barrow, who is also played by Majer, who comes up with this elixir that they're using. As he learned it, from what I learned in the movie, is from the Orient and kind of brought these secrets back with him. And something happens where Balthazar feels to be like indebted to Jezik and allows him to become his apprentice. There are just some cool elements here with how things play out in the end for me. I do have some gripes despite all these things that I liked. Now, I get this movie is set in the past where women don't necessarily have a lot of rights, and I mean, we're actually seeing that even today. Dagmar, though, is married to Bowden, who she loves. She does get annoyed that he gets entranced with what he's reading, but I don't like that other men in her life just think that because they love her, that they can have her. There's this element here that Bowden is a wealthy landowner. He doesn't seem like a horrible guy, so he doesn't really deserve anything bad from what I can see that we're given from this movie. Now, live in the world that I do today, though, the rich can be problematic. This movie also has a reveal that seemed to be popular for the era that I just am burned out on. It is early cinema, so I can't hold it against the movie too much, especially when I don't hold it against other movies from this era for doing it as well. To move away from that, I want to go to the acting next. Being that this is a silent film, there isn't a lot that I can go on. Everyone here seems to be stage actors, so we do get a bit of overacting, but I think that's necessary for the era. If you can convey things with your without your voice, it has to be done with the body, of course. Pistic is fine as our lead. Andra does well in taking on two roles that she has. I can't give her too much credit, though, as they're both very similar. Lamac is solid along with Majer. Everyone seems to fit what was needed, so I will say that for them. And then as for the effects and cinematography, there isn't much in the way of the former. This is early cinema, so there is, you know that they really don't know what they can do yet and they don't really have the technology. We do get an interesting time-lapse scene with Jezik as he's being woken up that I did like. 
There was this ghostly effect that was used as well. The cinematography is quite stationary. So it's hard to, you know, see some of these things as the print is not in a, you know, the best shape. But it is impressive that after, you know, 100 years, we can still watch it. Then really the last thing I want to talk about, I have, it's kind of weird, is the soundtrack. I have a feeling that some of the choices, that is my, you know, indicator here is that the soundtrack that we're getting on my copy that I watch wasn't what was originally intended. What I will say, though, is I really dug what they did here. Not all the selections fit, but for the most part, they really kind of helped to enhance what they did. There were a few times where it made me feel uncomfortable, and I really enjoyed that on the whole. So in conclusion here, this is a movie that is one that is, you know, rare in that it was created for the film instead of taking it from literature. I like some of the elements that we get for the story. I just feel that they focused on things that they didn't necessarily work for me. The acting is solid for the era, and the effects that we get are much of the same and the cinematography is also quite stationary. I can't hold that against it though being how old the movie is. The soundtrack I feel isn't what was originally envisioned but I, I dig most of it. Overall here I would say that this movie is just over average for me just lacking a little bit to go higher. Now there wasn't really any sort of trivia that I could relay for this movie so that's where I'm going to end everything. I'm not going to do a spoiler section because as I was saying there's not really a whole lot more to delve into here. So I would say here for Arrival from the Darkness my rating is a 6.5 out of 10. And as I say, since I'm not going to do spoilers or anything, I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my second featured review, which is my 2021 release. I just really would like a job doing something where I could feel like I was doing something good. I'd like to take this time to welcome Katie to our team. This is my friend Katie. She's going to be working in your home. You are so special. If you only knew. Hey, Stan. Who are you talking to? Yeah. So we use them all to know when they're coming. How was uh, Stephanie today? <laughs> Steph, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Give it a place with a lot of food, it'll keep coming. But if the devils find them, their entrance must be blocked by something that was once part of the living. Stephanie is in trouble. I'm just trying She's to help not her. She's not your concern anymore. Why so many? To protect us. To call them. To protect us from them. To call them. I'll teach you soon enough. And for my second featured review is going to be Dementor. This came out in 2019. It was written and directed by Chad Crawford Kinkle. This stars Brandy Edmiston, Larry Fessenden, and Katie Groshong. And then it is also featuring Eller Hall, Scott Hodges, and Stephanie Kinkle. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is too new to rate at the moment, so we don't have anything there, according to IMDb. And then on Letterboxd, though, there is a 2.8 rating is what I'm seeing at the moment. 
And then the synopsis here is after fleeing a backwoods cult, a woman tries to turn her life around by taking a job for special need adults, only to discover that she must face her dark past to save a Down Syndrome girl. Now, this is a movie that I got turned on to when I was asked if I wanted to check out the screener for review. When I realized that the director was the same guy who did Jugface, an underrated film in my opinion, I jumped on the chance to see this. Jamie also liked Jugface, so we decided we would watch this together. So then before I jump into, you know, my actual thoughts here, let me go ahead and do some featured notes here, is that the director of Kinkle has written and directed only two films, the first being Jugface, and that is one that Jake and I covered over on SideQuest Podcast, and we really both liked it, but it did have its issues for us. This is his sophomore effort now for, you know, writing and directing. In this film, we have Ed Miston, who... I believe she's only in this due to her working at the location with the participants, and I'll get into that here more shortly. And then Fezzedin, though, has been in 70 films to date. He is a little bit of an indie mainstay when it comes to the horror genre and started working back in the late 70s. I've seen him in his first horror debut feature with Habit, which was a short before he made it into that movie. Since then, you know, a majority of his stuff has been in the genre, and I've seen him in stuff like Session 9, Mulberry Street, Bitter Feast, You're Next, and then of course Jugface and The Dead Don't Die, just to name a few of them. Groshong, on the other hand, has been in five movies, and I've seen both of them as they're both in horror as she was in Jugface with Kinkle and Fezzedin now. So for this movie, we get a great cold open. There is a bonfire with someone standing before it nude. We then get to see this person running through a field with a truck following her with their lights on her. The soundtrack is quite eerie with this bell chiming that goes along with it. The opening credits are also done with what appears to be crayons that help, you know, give us this creepy vibe on top of that. It then takes us to Katie, who is Groshong, being interviewed for a job working with people that are intellectually disabled. She gets the job and then goes on to meet her co-worker of Brandy, who is Edmiston along with, you know, the many of the participants at this place. One in particular is a woman with Down Syndrome by the name of Stephanie, who is portrayed by Kinkle, who is the sister of the director. As Katie is leaving from her interview, she is asked where she is living. She states that she found a place out in the country, but in reality, she's living in her car. From the interview, she goes to a gas station to wash herself from the, in the bathroom, and it is during this that we see she has a large and strange scar on her back that looks to be a burn from being branded. In her cutting and showing Katie has settled into her new position, we learn that she was part of a cult. The leader was Larry, who is portrayed by Fessenden. She was lured in by some younger people, and Katie still has a book of things that she's learned through being with them. She is trying, though, to live a normal life. She starts to believe that she hasn't escaped them. Stephanie seems to be getting sick, and Katie thinks that it's the devils from the cult coming for her. She takes steps to help her, but Katie is drawing the attention of Brandy, who thinks that she could be, you know, there could be something up with her new co-worker here. Now, that is where I want to leave my recap of this movie, as it doesn't have the deepest story to it. With that being said, though, there are some really more of a character study here of Katie. We don't necessarily get this, but from my knowledge of people who end up being in cults, I think she is struggling and looking for direction in her life, and I think that's what led her to be, you know, picked up by these people. They tend to be more susceptible to a cult as they need the structure, now that she has left, she is still struggling with the programming that went on there. I will commend Katie, though, for wanting to help this population of people. The problem, though, is that this isn't the right place or time for her to do so. She really needs therapy of her own, and, you know, she's trying to handle these things and doing what has happened to her mostly in secret. This does create an interesting situation that we see, in my opinion. She is doing things that she learned from the cult to what she believes is a way to help Stephanie, 
where things end up in the end it is quite interesting and she might actually be doing quite the opposite of what she thinks she is doing here. And this is also brings up something that Jamie had said is that it almost feels like Katie might be a sleeper agent but not really necessarily knowing that she is. Is that what she thinks she's doing is helping but her programming is actually to help further this cult to other places or to kind of keep going with the teachings and everything. She doesn't realize what she's doing where she thinks she's actually trying to be helpful. The movie is constructed in an interesting way as well is that we meet Katie and much of what is happening we are seen through you know flashbacks and voiceover to intercut with what we're, she's doing now. The more she tries to distance herself, the more the stress mounts, the more she gets headaches and whatnot. These are intercut, as I was saying, with an interesting duality to what she's doing for her life now as opposed to what she was when she was with the cult. There's also to be this intriguing aspect here where Katie wasn't that much different from the people that she was working with now when she first arrived with the cult. What they do with her, though, is much different and not very helpful to her becoming a better person. Now, what I mean here is that these participants that she is working with, they're, you know, developmentally have issues that being around other people can definitely help that. Now, Katie was looking for structure, it seems like, or actually looking somewhere she could belong. So that is where I kind of get the duality for that. Going along with this, I want to shift this over to the effects and cinematography. We don't get a lot in the way of the first part here. There is blood that looks really good, and there also seems to be some animal parts that look to be real, but I'm assuming not actually hurting the animals to get them. What I really wanted to delve into, though, would be the cinematography. I read in the press release that Stephanie is the real sister of the writer and director. He wanted to make a movie with her, so he needed to you know, get a lot of releases in order to you know, film her, as well as more of the people that are in this group, as this legitimately looks like the people that she goes to for care and, you know, kind of help with any sort of thing that she might need. This makes the movie almost feel like a documentary with a horror movie framed around it. It does take a bit from the movie, though, but I do applaud Kinkle for deciding to do this and highlighting these individuals, as I do think we should sometimes, you know, celebrate these people because we don't necessarily get the opportunity to, especially because in cinema we're always trying to, you know, a lot of people are worshiping, you know, the movie stars and like award shows and stuff where there is this population here that is kind of underseen. Aside from that, we do get the strobe light effect at the climax. I didn't mind that as that makes for what we're seeing eerie, but Jamie wasn't a fan of it. It could be that she felt uncomfortable where for me, I enjoy that and I think it's effective, but on her side of it, she doesn't feel comfortable and that, you know, bothered her. What also really works well here is the soundtrack. Sean Spillane made this really unnerving song that pretty much is heard throughout the movie. It really helps the vibe the movie is going for in creating that atmosphere. The movie also uses this bell that will chime at regular intervals. It usually signifies when Katie starts to remember things from her past, and as the movie goes on this becomes more and more frequent as she descends into a type of madness. Then the last thing here that I want to go over would be the acting. I find it interesting that almost everyone in this cast is pretty much playing themselves or just characters with the same first name. I thought Groshong did well as this woman who gets lost, you know, and then got in with the wrong crowd with this cult and is now trying to break from it. She does a really good job at trying to keep things together while we watch her break down mentally. Edmiston is solid as her co-worker to help frame things as we go. Now, I'm pretty sure she's just kind of going about her job just being filmed while doing it and, you know, kind of playing along with a little bit that Katie could be, you know, this person that we know she to be as the character. I love seeing Fezzedin in this minor role as the cult leader. We really don't get to see him much, but we really just kind of get to hear his voice throughout, and it is effective. I also want to shout out to Stephanie Kinkle and the rest of the participants of the center that she goes to. I did like that she was included, you know, in this. So then before I close everything out here, I just had 
I want to expand a little bit is that Chad Crawford Kinkle built the film around his sister Stephanie, who of course has Down syndrome and stars as one of the film's leads. Per the press release materials, Kinkle has gone to great lengths to create a bold genre film that embraces and properly represents the developmentally disabled, while still being both thrilling and disturbing. The result is a singular and deeply personal independent feature unlike any before it. I am glad that he did that. I don't necessarily know if it works as effectively as he would have liked, but I do think that it is still is impactful and he is definitely right though. There are still some thrilling and disturbing aspects to this movie. So then in conclusion, I think this movie does do some things really well. The story is one that is interesting and doesn't have a lot of depth, but it really is more of a character study following Katie. I think her performance works, and I thought using Stephanie Kinkle and the other people from the center adds an element there. The soundtrack and cinematography do an excellent job of building atmosphere. I do feel some of the documentary feeling stuff might bog the movie down a bit, but I will say I never got bored though. Overall, I would say this is just above average movie though. Just see, you know, missing some things for to me to go higher with it personally. So my rating here for Dementor is a 7 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section or anything like that. This movie just got released on VOD, so I would want people to check this out if this does sound interesting to you. I do know I have a buddy over on Letterboxd who, you know, completely hated it, but I also had some people that really enjoyed it. So I would say if this sounds like it ticks some of your boxes to give it a viewing... So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is that's where I'm going to end all this here. I'm going to get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I would like to welcome you back one last time here, and then just to close everything out for episode 70 here of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones, that's reviews of the dead at horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook, it is David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, where I have all of the reviews that I'll post on there. That's David OSU. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I will be posting all of the posters of anything that I'm reviewing as David OSU87. And if you'd like to follow the journey with a cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile. And the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And the other thing I would ask is you, if you could do would be that if you could rate and review just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like. Same thing, if you also would like to send me any critiques or anything to read on the show, you go ahead and send me an email or get in touch with me in any of those ways that I have kind of laid out. And I will also have all of those in the show notes as well to make it easier for you. So for episode 71, this is going to officially start, you know, the Odyssey through the Ones episodes that I'm going to do. I think the movie I'm going to watch next is from 1931, is Svengali, one that I believe stars John Barrymore. I've never seen that one before. And this one doesn't necessarily pair up perfectly with it, but I've heard a lot of good things about Psycho Gorman. So I think I'm going to pair up those two as my, you know, featured reviews on that, and I'll have some mini reviews on there as well. Don't really think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with. So just to say here in closing that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 